There's so much health advice floating around, online, among friends. But who can you really trust? Trust the experts. Listen to the world's brightest medical minds, our very own Cleveland Clinic experts. We ask them real questions, tough and intimate health questions, and we get real answers, all originally recorded live. Welcome to the Health Essentials Podcast, brought to you by Cleveland Clinic. I'm your host, Deanna Pogorels. Now, March is Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. You might not know that colorectal cancer is the second leading cause of cancer deaths in the U.S. In recent years, it's become increasingly more common in younger adults, but it's actually very preventable and curable if it's detected early. So here to tell us everything we need to know about risk factors, who should get screened, and what symptoms we should never ignore is Dr. David Liska. He's a colorectal surgeon and director of the Sanford R. Weiss Center for Hereditary Colorectal Cancer, and also the Center for Young Onset Colorectal Cancer here at Cleveland Clinic. Hi, Dr. Liska. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Listeners, please remember that this is for informational purposes only and is not intended to replace your own physician's advice. Dr. Liska, can you start by telling us a little bit about colorectal cancer here in the U.S.? What impact does it have? Um, are the number of cases going upward or downward? Yes, yeah, so colorectal cancer is a major problem in the U.S. and in most of the developed world. And um, in the U.S., it is the third most common cancer among men and women. And just like you said, it's the second most common cause of cancer-related deaths. Each year, approximately 150,000 people are diagnosed with colorectal cancer. In terms of the trends of the numbers, so overall, the numbers are improving, and this is directly related to the uptake of screening for colorectal cancer here in the United States. And over the last five years, the rate has dropped by about 1% each year. However, just like you said, the opposite is the case for people under the age of 50, where the rate has been increasing by about 2% each year for the last five years. And alarmingly, if this trend were to continue, we would expect over the next 10 years the incidence of colon cancer in young adults to double and of rectal cancer to quadruple. Do we know why that's happening or what things might be contributing to that? Yeah, that is, that is a great and unfortunately still unanswered question. And we and many others are doing a lot of research on that. And so we know that hereditary colorectal cancer syndromes are more commonly found in young people with colorectal cancer. However, the majority of young people with colorectal cancer do not have a hereditary condition. And there are several possible explanations as to why colorectal cancer is increasing in the young. So one uh, theory that makes a lot of sense uh, looks at the parallel obesity epidemic here in the United States. And we know that obesity and a sedentary lifestyle are risk factors for colorectal cancers, and so are diets that are associated with obesity. So it makes a lot of sense to say that one of the reasons for the rise in young onset colorectal cancer is due to the rise of obesity in the United States. However, that being said, obesity, diet, and exercise are clearly not the only explanation for colorectal cancer in the young. Many of my own young patients with colorectal cancer are actually quite fit and eat a healthy diet. So there's certainly more work that we need to do to understand why colorectal cancer in the young is happening more and more commonly. When we talk about colorectal cancer, is this the same thing as colon cancer? Or, um, you know, I want to talk a little bit about the terminology and make sure we understand, you know, what specific parts of the body are we talking about? Right. That's, that's a great question. So uh, the colon and rectum make up the large intestine. 
And uh, the first part of the large intestine is the colon. So the small intestine meets the colon at the cecum. That's the first part of the colon. And then as uh, the food gets absorbed and water gets absorbed in the colon then um, and becomes a stool, it enters the rectum, which is the last uh, half foot or so of large intestine, and then exit through the anus. So uh, that's what the colon and rectum are. And the reason why differentiate between colon and rectal cancer um, is because treatment can be different for the two. Okay, but a cancer can develop on any part of that correct, that you just correct. mentioned. Correct, yeah, exactly. Cancer can develop in any part of the colorectum. And interestingly, what we've found for, specifically when we're talking about young onset colorectal cancer, is that the majority of these cancers are in the more uh, distal aspect of the large intestine, meaning much more commonly in the colon or the last part, uh, sorry, much more commonly in the rectum or the last part of the large intestine. Okay. So can we start by talking a little bit about prevention? Um, you know, what kind of things should we be doing every day to take care of our colon and, you know, prevent this type of cancer? Right. So, so really the most important thing about preventing colon rectal cancer is getting screened. And that's obviously not something that you do every day, but that's something that's part of uh, our healthcare maintenance. And that's something that uh, needs to be part of everybody's routine is uh, getting uh, regular screening examinations. Uh, in terms of other things that you can do every day in terms of uh, lifestyle issues. And so it's been shown that diets that are rich in fruits, vegetables, and whole grains can protect from colorectal cancer. And calcium and vitamin D are some of the minerals and supplements that people have found can help protect from colorectal cancer. Regular exercise uh, can possibly protect it. Uh, avoiding anything that can lead to obesity and you know, not smoking. Smoking is a big risk factor for colorectal cancer. And alcohol also, an excessive uh, intake of alcohol are all risk factors for colorectal cancer. So again, a healthy diet and avoiding uh, smoking and alcohol are some of the major things that people can do to protect themselves. You mentioned earlier um, genetics, and I was wondering if somebody in your family has colorectal cancer, does that mean that um, you are also at increased risk? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a really important part. Another thing that people can do to help prevent colorectal cancer, and that's knowing their family history. And, you know, this is not a topic that a lot of people talk about openly, but it is important for everyone to know uh, what their specific family history is in terms of, uh, especially their parents, uh, siblings, if they had colon cancer, or even if there wasn't a colon cancer, but just an advanced precancerous polyp, all those would increase uh, one's own risk for colorectal cancer and would often also change when and how often you should start to have screening examinations done. So it's important for everyone to know their family history and it's it's a good thing for families to discuss openly because it has important implications for everyone. So yes, uh, it's important to know your family history and then discuss that with your physician, because like I said, it might affect when you should start to be screened and how often. Absolutely. Okay, and what about our own health history? You know, if we have a history of another digestive condition, like maybe IBS or inflammatory bowel disease, does that play any role in our risk? Yeah, absolutely. So besides the known genetic hereditary colorectal cancer conditions, which really increase your risk, um, Intestinal disease, such as inflammatory bowel disease, which includes Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, has been shown to increase the risk of colorectal cancer. Uh, irritable bowel syndrome, so IBS, which is different from IBD, 
and has not really been directly linked to colorectal cancer. Uh, however, the ulcerative colitis or Crohn's colitis, which often um, can be mistaken initially for IBS uh, due to the increase in inflammation, has been directly linked to an increased risk for colorectal cancer. And again, patients who have one of these conditions and have it for a long time are at higher risk and need to have more frequent screening performed. Other diseases that have been shown to increase the risk, not to the same extent, would be diabetes, which is also becoming more and more common in the United States. So that's another disease that can uh, increase the risk for colorectal cancer to some extent. Can you help us understand how colorectal cancer starts? How does it develop and how long does that take? Yeah, so that's been studied uh, quite a bit and we have a fairly good understanding of how colorectal cancer happens. And uh, it's really due to the large intestine uh, changing uh, its lining very frequently. Almost on a weekly basis, does the entire lining of the large intestine get exchanged? And due to the high turnover of cells uh, in the large intestine, uh, mutations can happen. And these mutations, uh, if they provide a survival benefit to that cell, can then cause a polyp to form. Uh, a polyp can then get larger and develop uh, more mutations, uh, which eventually leads to cancer. So it's a, a slow process that can take many years, um, and it really gives us a chance to catch the cancer before it turns into a cancer at the pre-cancer stage when it's still a polyp. And uh, that's why colonoscopies can help prevent colorectal cancer, because it can find the polyp before it turns into a cancer and can then remove it. Great. So let's talk a little more about colonoscopies. You know, who should be getting them? When should they start? And how often should they be getting them? Right. So for many years now, the general screening recommendation has been to start screening at the age of 50. And this is certainly still true. Uh, however, due to the rise in young onset colorectal cancer that we just discussed, and more recently in 2018, the American Cancer Society changed the recommendation to start screening at age 45. And importantly, the US Preventive Service Task Force uh, recently also published draft recommendations that they're in the process of finalizing to start screening at age 45 for all average risk individuals. And once these recommendations are finalized, most insurances will start covering screening colonoscopies at age 45. Is it still safe for people to be getting colonoscopies during the pandemic? Yes, absolutely. Uh, it's still important. This uh, pandemic has now uh, been going on for almost a year, and uh, this is a long time to skip screening colonoscopies. And we have seen at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a significant drop in uh, the number of people who came for their colonoscopies. And I myself have seen some patients who delayed their colonoscopies and then presented uh, with a cancer that was potentially more advanced uh, than if they had had the colonoscopy when they were supposed to have it. Um, so definitely screening is still important even during this pandemic. Uh, we and many other health institutions have many policies in place to make sure that when people come for their screening colonoscopy, that is performed safely. And uh, that's uh, make sure that people can have what's important for their health even during this pandemic. Uh, besides colonoscopies, the other screening methods available that people can do from home, which would not require coming to the hospital. And those are some of those blood-based, the stool-based tests that we've discussed. And 
And again, if those are positive, they would then require colonoscopy, which is still safe even during the pandemic and important to do. Okay, so when we talk about colonoscopies, we have to talk a little bit about the PrEP. I know this is something that can be intimidating for some folks, um, you know, as well as anesthesia during the procedure. How do you make decisions about, you know, what method of PrEP to recommend to your patients? And is that something they can discuss with you if they're concerned? Absolutely, yeah. Um, preparation and how the anesthesia should be performed in colonoscopy can definitely be individualized based on the patient's needs. The most common type of preparation uh, is something based on polyethylene glycol, where you usually drink um, half a gallon to a gallon of liquid, clear liquid, and that ends up cleaning out the colon. However, some patients don't tolerate this, uh, partially due to the amount, due to the flavor. So there are different uh, types of PrEP available. And more recently, there are some other preparations available that are much smaller in volume. They're not always covered by insurance. However, they can make the process a lot easier. So again, if a patient has a hard time finishing a large amount or gets nauseous from a specific preparation, the type of preparation can be changed. Also, uh, we very often uh, now recommend our patients do a split preparation where they do half of it uh, the night before and half of it the morning of, which also makes it a little bit easier on the patient and actually makes the uh, cleanup more effective. So these are some of the methods and, and you know some of the options available to patients in terms of the preparation. Um, it's definitely not fun, but there are alternatives available that can make it a little easier. And every patient uh, is different in terms of how they're gonna respond to preparation. And some patients, especially those who have a history of chronic constipation, will sometimes need a more extensive prep. And that's also an important thing to bring up with your doctor. Uh, now, in terms of the anesthesia for colonoscopies, there's different uh, types of anesthesia available, different types of sedation. And some patients, pretty rare, will ask for no sedation at all, and they wanna be awake and talking throughout the entire procedure. And that is an option. Um, however, you want to talk to your endoscopist beforehand to make sure that they're aware that you would like to do that. The most common uh, form of sedation that we do here is called conscious sedation or moderate sedation, where we use medications that sedate the patient and um, also control pain. And uh, most patients with those medications are asleep for the entire procedure, but can be aroused uh, you know, by shaking them or talking to them loudly. Um, Patients who have a hard time with that specific type of sedation have an option for anesthesia where they're completely asleep during the procedure and don't notice anything. But those who usually need an anesthesiologist present. So uh, it's not a standard approach, but it's definitely available for patients who have had a hard time during previous colonoscopies or who know ahead of time that they wouldn't uh, want to be awake for any of it uh, or not even uh, just slightly asleep. Great, that's great to know. Um, so what happens if a polyp is discovered during someone's colonoscopy? What happens then? All right, so when we find a polyp during the colonoscopy, which is really um, the point of the colonoscopy to see if there are any polyps or we can remove them, the polyp gets removed. And there are different methods of removing these polyps um, depending on the size and um, where they're located. But generally in the vast majority of cases, the polyp can be completely removed and then sent uh, to the pathologist We'll look at it under the microscope and then tell us what type of polyp it is. And um, just 
to let everyone know, it's very common to find small precancerous polyps during a colonoscopy, and it's not something to be alarmed about after the colonoscopy if you are told that you've had a polyp. Uh, you know, in fact, probably 40% uh, percent of men and a little lower percentage of women will have a polyp found during their colonoscopy. And um, like I said, those are then examined in the lab. Uh, the most common precancerous polyp is called a tubular adenoma. And when that is found, that will inform when your next colonoscopy should be performed. Depending on the type, the size, and number of polyps, that will then uh, have your endoscopist reach out to you to tell you when you should have your next colonoscopy. Great. And if for some reason someone decides they don't want to have a colonoscopy, are there other alternative ways that um, you can screen for colorectal cancer? Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, you know, colonoscopy is just one method of screening. Uh, there's several different methods of screening, and they can be grouped under two different categories. One is a visual inspection of the colon, and that's the most common one uh, is the colonoscopy. But there's a virtual colonoscopy, which is done with a CT scan that can also be uh, quite sensitive in uh, visualizing small polyps or cancers. There's a flexible sigmoidoscopy, which examines only the last part of the large intestine. And those are sort of the three main exams that visualize the, the colon. There are other screening examinations that uh, are based on stool. And uh, one of them is the FIT test, which looks for blood components in the stool. And another one that's becoming more and more popular looks at DNA within the stool uh, with a combination of blood products. And uh, that's uh, the Cologuard brand that uh, we've seen a lot of advertisements for recently. And all these tests are effective in screening for colon cancer, but they're different when compared to the colonoscopy where colonoscopy can find early uh, polyps and remove them, whereas the stool-based tests, if they come back abnormal, would then still require a colonoscopy to intervene upon and confirm. Okay, great. So you mentioned earlier that the increase in screening is you know, helping reduce uh, colorectal cancer. And I'm curious, how often is it discovered that way and you know, in screening versus someone developing symptoms and, and coming in that way? Yeah, that's a great question that um, I don't think we really know the answer for here in the United States. And, um, you know, the good news is that more and more people are getting screened, but unfortunately, it's still not uh, 100% of the people who should be getting screened. And so unfortunately, still a large proportion of patients when they're diagnosed with colorectal cancer are diagnosed due to symptoms. And unfortunately, once you're diagnosed with colorectal cancer due to symptoms, it often is at a more advanced stage than if it's caught with screening. So ideally we would be able to catch all colorectal cancers uh, with screening rather than due to symptoms. However, in young people with colorectal cancer where many of them don't have a recommendation for screening, it is much more common to be uh, caught due to symptoms. So when we talk about symptoms, what are some of the warning signs that people should be aware of that they should never ignore? Right, so one of the important warning signs is any blood in your stool or blood coming from your rectum. And uh, while that's often uh, attributed to hemorrhoids, which is uh, very often true, um, it should not be just attributed to hemorrhoids without a discussion with your physician and possible examination. So whenever somebody sees blood in their stool or in the toilet paper, you should definitely bring it up with your physician uh, and uh, discuss if a colonoscopy or other examination is necessary.
second, uh, another common symptom is change in bowel habits. And uh, that can be a variety of things. It depends on what a person's normal bowel habits are. So if a person has one bowel uh, movement a day, and then all of a sudden goes to not having a bowel movement for many days, and this is something that's consistent uh, over a period of time, that's definitely something to bring up with your physician. Uh, or the opposite, if you have one bowel movement of a day, and then you go to having diarrhea and going 10 times a day, and again, it's not just a one-time thing after you know a bad Mexican meal you had somewhere, but you know, uh, something that's consistent with you for many days, that's definitely something to bring up your, with your physician. Um, another thing to look out for is a change in the caliber of your stool. If you consistently note that the caliber of your stool is smaller uh, and different from what it usually looks like, that's another thing to bring up with your physician. Uh, other more vague symptoms related, uh, it could be related to colorectal cancer, would be unintentional weight loss. So if you notice that uh, you're losing weight and you don't really have a reason for it, despite uh, you think you're eating normally, it's something to bring up with your physician. Uh, abdominal pain is not a very common symptom related to colorectal cancer, but it can be. So if you have abdominal pain that's, again, consistent over a period of time, that's something to bring up with your physician as well. And sometimes it can be even more vague and, and nondescript where you just feel tired and uh, have no energy for a long period of time. And that can sometimes be to, due to anemia, meaning a loss of blood that's not detected and it slowly uh, reduces your blood count and that can cause fatigue. So all those are symptoms that can be associated with colorectal cancer and should definitely be discussed with your physician. And then is the first step there to see your primary care physician? Yes, definitely. Primary care physician is always a good place to start, um, but it can also be directly with a gastroenterologist or colorectal surgeon. And depending on, on you know, how easy your access is to your primary care physician, and usually it makes sense to start with somebody, a physician who knows you, but there are specialists available as well. What have we seen in terms of outcomes for these younger adults who are um, developing colorectal cancer when it's caught early? Right, so, so, you know, colorectal cancer when caught early in the vast majority of cases can be cured. And unfortunately, we have seen in younger people, there's a higher percentage of people who are young who present at a more advanced stage. And at that point, the cancer can be a little uh, harder to cure. Uh, still, the majority of patients, uh, even in the more advanced stage, as long as it hasn't spread to other organs, in most cases, the cancer can be cured. So that's really the, the first thing to focus on when facing a diagnosis of colorectal cancer, that there are very effective treatments available and that most patients will be able to be cured. Yeah, can you just give us an idea of, you know, some of those treatments that you mentioned? Um, what could someone expect in terms of that? All right, so the mainstay of treatment for colorectal cancer is surgery, where the part of the colon that has the cancer in it is removed. Uh, following that surgery, once we know the exact stage of the cancer, uh, there's the discussion uh, with the oncologist if chemotherapy is needed or beneficial. Um, and that's for most localized and early cancer, uh, chemotherapy is not necessary. And uh, when it's more advanced, when it is spread to lymph nodes or other organs, usually chemotherapy will be recommended. So this has been great. This has been so helpful. You know, if you had to give one takeaway message for our listeners, you know, especially our, our younger listeners, what would you say would be the takeaway for them? 
Right. Uh, so number one is uh, listen to your body, listen to the symptoms that your body is, is telling you that are happening. And uh, number two is know your family history. And number three, have an open communication with your primary care doctor or any other physician you see uh, to make sure that you tell them uh, about your risk factors and about any symptoms you might develop. Great. Well, thank you so much for being here today. And if you'd like to learn more about Cleveland Clinic's Digestive Disease Institute or schedule an appointment, visit clevelandclinic.org slash colonoscopy. To listen to more podcasts with our Cleveland Clinic experts, please visit clevelandclinic.org slash HEPodcasts or subscribe wherever you're listening now. You can always follow us at Cleveland Clinic on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for more health tips, news, and information. Thanks for tuning in. This concludes this Cleveland Clinic Health Essentials podcast. Thank you for listening. Join us again soon.